1: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Anil Dash. He is a leading technician, entrepreneur, founder uh, in the world of micro-publishing and blogging. I know his work from back when Six Apart was an early pioneer uh, in the world of blogging, they put out TypePad, which was really the first robust WYSIWYG, what-you-see-is-what-you-get sort of blogging platform. Before that, you had companies like Yahoo GeoCities. Uh, my first blog was on GeoCities, and I-, I-, I say this, it's its really not a joke. It's true. I say it as a joke, but it's true. I would take 15, 20 minutes to write something and then two hours to code in an HTML in order for it to work on GeoCities. It was you were literally coding everything, every every indent, every bold, every underline, every paragraph had an HTML code around it. So to reduce that process of of micro publishing to something that was like it very much was like working on a document on Microsoft Word. If you wanted to format it, you just clicked the button that said, here's your underline, here's your italics, here's your footnote, here's your... And it was it was absolutely game-changing. Uh, it went from uh, a 10 to 1 ratio of, of coding to writing to uh, 100 to 1 in the opposite direction. You would take a half hour to write something and maybe 30 seconds to format it. It was easy as pie. My first blog was bigpicture.typepad.com. It's still up there. By the way, not only did they create the software for this, but they also created the hosting for it. And I find Six Apart was a game changer for the world of, of publishing. Uh, I found this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. If you're into blogging, technology, entrepreneurship, venture capital, etc., you're going to find this conversation fascinating. So with no further ado... My conversation with Anil Dash. My special guest today is Anil Dash. He was an advisor to the Obama White House's Office of Digital Strategy. He is a technical advisor to Vox Media, advises the company Medium on its publishing. He is also on the National Advisory Council of Digital Donors choose. His day job is CEO of FogCrete Software, which has created such products as Stack Overflow and Trello. Were they involved in Markerbase, or is that something separate? Uh, Makerbase was a a startup I was doing right before this. Before that. He writes a monthly opinion column on the impact of technology on society for Wired magazine. I know him as employee number one at Six Apart behind the seminal blogging software TypePad. He also serves on the board of the Data and Society Research Institute. Anil Dash, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks so much for having me here. So, I mentioned TypeHead. I really have to jump right into that. (laughs) Yeah. I know who you are because I actually was a beta tester for TypeHead, and that's where I rolled out... Thank you for being one. (laughs) That's where I rolled out the big picture blog... Tell us about your role with the company uh, Six Apart. Sure.
2: So I, I started blogging back in 1999, mm-hmm. and there were a couple dozen bloggers on the internet. And I thought, uh, what were you using to blog? back I, then? I was manually doing it. I was uh, the people who use Windows will remember an app called Notepad. Sure. And I was manually writing HTML, the language of web pages, in Notepad and saving it onto a. Uh, a web server by myself, uh, which is the cutting edge of technology back in the last. So,
1: century. so I was using Yahoo GeoCities, which uh-huh. you're telling me is more advanced. Yeah, I was just cutting and pasting content and then having to wrap the HTML code around.
2: Right. It. So that was the state of the art. And then in late '99, <laughs> a couple of the first blogging tools came along, mm-hmm. and then uh, and so I started using those, like Blogger, and which Google later bought, and other mm-hmm. tools like that. And uh, and friends shortly thereafter built this tool called Movable Type. And it was the first sort of serious blogging platform. Almost immediately, people used it to build Gawker, Huffington Post. These
1: Who was types. behind Movable Type? Uh,
2: uh, they were a then husband and wife couple, uh, Ben Trott and Mina Trot, mm-hmm. um, and um, and really were sort of visionaries about the idea that we should take this medium seriously. It was going to be something big. It wasn't just uh, uh, you know people uh, sharing their feelings in a journal online. Like this was going to be where media was headed.
1: And this is this is pre Facebook, pre
2: Twitter. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is way early. Yeah, yeah, before Friendster. If you remember that one, so way, way back there, and consumer internet was dead, Mm -hmm. deader than dead in 2001. I mean, you couldn't. You know, uh, we we did a a round that was 600 grand uh, Mm -hmm. that we raised, and people were like, "Wow, that's all the money in the world." You know, that was huge. (laughs) I mean, it's 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 like the catering budget for a launch party for one of these startups today. And, uh, and so we did that, and what was interesting was people almost immediately recognized this is important. This is mm-hmm. something new in media. There's something really powerful enabling here, and we thought it's still not easy enough. It was still, you had to have a lot of technical knowledge. Right. And that was where TypePad came from. You know, I think the predecessor to today, you see the, the WordPresses and mediums and Tumblers of the world, and all of them, I think, would say, you know, TypePad is a direct antecedent to that. And
1: It was uh, the first, as far as I can recall, it was the first WYSIWYG, Sort of blogging software. Oh, what yeah. you see is what you get. It was like operating within a Word Perfect or a Word Doc. Yeah, yeah, since it was since it was seventeen years ago, I could say Word Perfect. <laughs> exactly. I don't think anyone knows what that for the, is. for anymore. the
2: old timers. But right. I, I think you know the other thing that's really interesting was we were experimenting with today, you know, a lot of things that we take for granted in consumer web. So just the fact that we had a consumer pay model that was 5 bucks a month, 10 bucks a month. I mean, now, you know, everybody's paying for Spotify and Netflix and it's no
1: thing. Right, nobody was really thinking of no. in terms of recurring revenue stream and a monthly yeah, yeah. hit the credit card.
2: Yeah, the idea that that we were even going to ask people to do that was radical. I mean, this stuff sounds like ridiculous because we all do it now, but, uh, you know, was this 16 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, people were really, really taken aback by that. The other thing that I think in retrospect was a bigger deal huge deal and we sort of just took it for granted was we were probably the first consumer product to use Amazon Web Services on the back end
1: oh really So That's we, very interesting
2: we had some features that would let you list books you were reading and music you were listening to and they would talk to Amazon and link up you know buy my book or, or, or you know buy this back then CD and um the interesting thing about that is no, some of
1: us still buy CDs just as uh, every
2: once in a great while mm-hmm. I won't
1: do so you know for collecting purposes that's exactly
2: right and and so it was an interesting thing was that um, we had this this app talking to web services from Amazon um, you know years and years before I think that became commonplace and then the third thing that that type had did I think nobody really remembers um, so the you know the iPhone launch it didn't have an app store you know, Steve Jobs was like, "You got to use the web." He was against it originally, and then, and then a year later or so, they said, "Okay, we're going to introduce the App Store." At that initial rollout, on stage with Steve Jobs, we had our head of product for TypePad showing TypePad taking photos on your phone uploading them to the web from your iPhone, you know, in real time. This was, you know, the sort of the years you know, long before Instagram took off. Right. The very first initial launch of the App Store, TypePad was one of the first apps they ever
1: featured. And TypePad is still around, still yeah, six parts, yeah. still doing this no, thing? No, they,
2: they, uh, they changed ownership a bunch of times. I, don't, I literally mm-hmm. have even followed because I've been so busy with other stuff the last several years. But they, I mean,
1: they- I know the old big picture, which I did not take down when mm-hmm. I moved to WordPress. and. Yeah. In 08. I picked yeah. September 08 as perfect time in the middle of the financial crisis. <laughs> it was like six months in advance, and then the world blew up. I kept both that mm-hmm. and I had a fun Essays and Effluvia for yeah. just yeah. random effluvia. Um, And they're still up and running. I still, at one point in time, it was 50% of the traffic to WordPress. And then it gradually, you know, as as people move their bookmarks and RSS feeders, which no longer exist. Oh, yeah. There's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of technology that's sort of come
2: come and gone. And I think some of these things will come back around again, but it's been an interesting thing to watch. Um, A lot of these ideas we thought were really radical around, oh, you might take a picture on your camera on your phone and then and share, share it. with people instantly. And you might wow. store that on Amazon Web Services and you might use a service that's got a, uh, a consumer subscription model as, as the way of accessing it. All those things, um, you know, we weren't necessarily, I, well, we were first on some of them, but we weren't, you know, the only ones doing them. I think to have bet. You
1: certainly popularized that. Yeah,
2: I think to have bet that that was the way the internet was headed were were some of the things that were just as important as the idea that blogs were going to be media that
1: mattered. Here's a quote of yours that I like Any form of electronic communication will first be dismissed as trivial and worthless until it produces a profound result, after which it will be described as obvious and boring. Yeah, that's been my experience for sure. You've been blogging since 1999. Mm -hmm. Was this the plan all along to just keep
2: keep (laughs) blogging? You know, it was really one of those. I was uh, underemployed, not real happy with my place in life, and thought I'm going to have a creative outlet to put stuff out there. And I can't sing, and I can't you know, (laughs) I can't I can't uh, uh, do a radio show. So let me do this. And uh, it was an interesting thing to to sort of just have this outlet, and then realize this medium mattered enough, and that
1: I had been early. You know, I thought Mm -hmm. I was late starting in 99. That's funny, because when I started on Typehead, it was 03, the mm-hmm. som- I even remember, July t- yeah, 2003, right. and it was essentially a handful of college uh, economics professors, nobody really writing about markets, nobody really mm-hmm. writing about investing, and you end up – my experience was similar to yours in that I'm not thrilled with what I'm doing, I'm kind of you know, looking for a creative outlet – but it was clear that the mainstream media—they—they they would take some young kid out of school and throw them. Oh, nobody wants to cover the Fed. Yeah, nobody wants to yeah. do economics back then, and um, they were frequently, if not wrong, then lacking context. Yeah. And they, were, they weren't deep enough in it. Right. right. And, and I think
2: that was the thing is the then the people writing the blogs were the people who were like, I'm obsessing over this, whether there's an audience or not.
1: That's that nobody care. You know, my view was, who cares if there's an audience? There was a whole run of. Expert amateurs is that yeah, a, yeah, is that a, yeah. li- a, a real
2: thing? I don't know, but I, I know exactly what you mean, and I, I think that summer too was a particularly interesting time. Summer of three because we had folks coming up that were doing covering aspects of economics that people weren't covering. Um, we brought some of the vers- first, well, really, I think all the first VCs that started blogging came out on TypePad. So we had Fred Wilson on. We had still blogs, yeah. Uh, David Hornick from August Capital, a bunch mm-hmm. of these folks. Uh, Joe Ito, who's now uh, heading up the Media Lab at MIT, MIT. Right? yeah. yeah. And you know, all these folks were uh, Reed Hoffman. Um, sure, you know, you know like all who now people. has a podcast? Exactly, himself.
1: exactly. So former like, CEO of uh, of LinkedIn and founder of LinkedIn, right?
2: And uh, and so all these people were, you know, I knew them as investors, and I was not at all fluent in, in um, VC. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew tech, but I, at that time, you could actually build an entire career writing software and never crossed paths with VC. Really? Yeah, you know, it was, it was pretty common. And, cause, sure, you know, it was a lot and of big pop, companies. Yeah, and... mom and pop shops that were building software and apps, and they would sort of grow organically out of that. And mm-hmm. um, and if you weren't in the Valley in particular, you know, you, you could easily, I was in New York, you could just never cross paths. And so to read these blogs was like opening up this whole new world. sure, And they were, now I understand, like, you know, to some degree, it was content marketing. They were marketing their their firms by being better storytellers. I uh, think that's what they were it's also evolved to, transparency.
1: right? I think that's what it's evolved to. The same thing with the freemium model. Here's a whole bunch of free content. Mm-hmm. Owned by the way, if you want right. to work with us, you can do. But that's not. I don't think that was anyone's intent. It truly no. wasn't my intention. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to blog <laughs> right. in obscurity for 12 years, yeah. and then yeah, yeah, one day yeah, really I'll have game. a radio show.
2: Well, it's so interesting because I had that where you know one of the people I connected with back then um, was Joel Spolsky, who was mm-hmm. writing a blog called Joel on Software. And he was really the first person to write about sort of coding culture, technical culture. And it was one of those things that those of us who were coding for a living, which is what I did back then, knew these things, but had never seen them addressed as like you, you are, you know, people at a place in society. And he was mm-hmm. taking programmers very seriously. Um, Part of the reason he was blogging then is he was explaining the ideas behind the new company he had just created, which was Fog Creek Software. Mm-hmm. And so, seventeen years later, you know, for well, sixteen years from that point, that I took over as CEO of that company, um, it felt like I knew everything about how this company ran and what its values were and what its purpose was in the world because I had from day one followed along with the storytelling. And you think he was not content marketing; he was not. <laughs> you right. know, he didn't start writing this. He was literally like trying to solve a problem, like how do you deal with real estate in Manhattan? How do, you, how do you keep programmers happy in a world where, you know, back then, hard as it is to believe, programmers were treated sort of like dirt. They were like, ah, this mm-hmm. guy in the back, we're going to give him a computer and lock him in the dark and throw pizza he under them. the door. Exactly, right, and, and throw caffeine at him. and uh, And now, you know, you think, well, I mean, there's probably no... More spoiled workers in the world in terms of like the free massages and the and the trays of candy and the, you, you mentioned and that else.
1: Google lifted the idea of all the free food. The yeah, food, the f-
2: I, I, this and this is one of those things where like things become urban legend and right. so it's hard to separate fact from fiction. But what what I've heard so um, one thing that is you know definitely true is Fog Creek uh, was one of the first companies to do the like let's really spoil our coders and our technical workers and it was everything from great free lunches to um, one of the things I still spend a lot of time working on uh, completely end-to-end healthcare. Mm-hmm. Nobody on our team pays anything for healthcare. Wow. Um, in fact, we have people who've been at the company a long time, or they came right out of school. They didn't know what in-network, out-of-network means because they never had to deal with <laughs> they it. they don't on the like, network, and I was like, "That's great! Like that's what we want people to feel." And then one of those things was really great: free catered lunches. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, I think some of this was the company was always like downtown Manhattan, and especially back then, you know, just post nine eleven, there wasn't there wasn't like good restaurants there you know you know it also especially if you're working late like 5 p.m. It would just shut down. That neighborhood would just be deader than so. That. How
1: do you get food down to? And so they had caterers, right? And they had caterers
2: they come and show up. Every how, how, day many, for lunch. how many
1: employees? So now the company
2: we're about forty. It's re- it's still pretty small. It's it's mm-hmm. kind of gone up and down in size because um, over the years, like they co-created Stack Overflow and they created Trello. And as those products grow, they get pretty big, and then they would spin them out. Right. That so Trello, sense. you know, Trello spun out a couple years ago and sold to Atlassian back in January for four hundred. 25 million, let,
1: like let me reel you back into the yeah. blogosphere and talk oh, a yeah, yeah, about please. one of my favorite subjects, which is um, a, a, pub- a, a blog post of yours called Don't Read the Comments. <laughs> now, I wrote Bailout Nation on the blog. I mm-hmm. would put up a few hundred words, and I would get feedback, and have you seen this story, and look mm-hmm. at this link, and the the readers, the community was astonishing. Yeah, yeah. And then tragedy of the comments it just gets overrun with spammers and trolls mm-hmm. and it became so time consuming mm-hmm. to stay on top of comments that finally I had to just grit my teeth and rip the band aid off and close comments. And down. I was not happy about doing it. Right. But it just became this giant time suck. What is the problem? And by the way, that's true on my columns at The Washington Post yeah. and Bloomberg as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's like if you want to say something, go someplace. Here's a link to Twitter. Here's a link to Facebook where hopefully you aren't doing this anonymously mm. and you could be called out because eventually I could subpoena Twitter and find out who you are if you say something <laughs> really twitter uh, Although, although Twitter's been done a good job of protecting people's anonymity. Oh, they've as done, as done as a hard so. – protecting on anonymity, yes. But, but not abuse at all. all right. right. They're just yeah. – in fact – in so, fact, uh, my argument as to why Twitter stock prices has been in the crapper all this time is mm-hmm. they have not created an encouraging community. Totally. Totally agree. So
2: there's a couple things I would sort of break out here. You know, the first is um, I, I get to watch people creating the first comment systems on the Internet. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a time when you couldn't actually comment on a Web page. And so um, the interestingly, the challenge then was, well, are people going to type in this box at all? Or they can even understand that you can leave a comment and it'll show up on the page and that's a thing you can do. So they were hyper optimized for at any cost, we just want to put, we don't want to put any barriers to somebody typing in this box and leaving a comment. Um, Of course, that pretty quickly became, well, we made it really, really easy and now there's no barriers and there's no standards. And what, you know, I wish we had understood the time, and I will say this, this is something I personally didn't get for a long time was you make a real community by introducing a set of rules that everybody understands. This is true in the physical world. Mm-hmm. We get it very intuitively. If you go to a park and it's got the, you know, you, you can't be throwing your ball around here because you're going to hit these little kids that are over here, or there's a dog running, you got to keep your dog inside the fence. Whatever the rules are, it makes the place work for everybody. And mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be onerous, It doesn't have to be a burden. We didn't do any of that in creating these online systems. And in fact... A lot of the people, and this is something—it wasn't as much me, but people that I, I saw that were creating other tools that made the systems for commenting and feedback online were total zealots about the fact there shouldn't be any rules. It should be wild west all the time, and you know, wild west is basically well—if you have wild west and there's no cops,
1: guess who runs the show? That's right, the, <laughs> you know, that's, the outlaws. And, exactly. and in fact, when when I was, I, I went through a two-step process. The first step was saying. All right, we're going to do moderated comments, and and in order to, I'm going to set up some rules which I'm not going to share, so you're not going to know, you won't be able to game mm. the system, mm-hmm. just for just just to get past step one, and then step two is no ad hominem attacks, no mm-hmm. no false, no fake yeah. news. Yeah, like it, it's amazing that one simple sentence of nonsense can undercut the this whole conversation. Deep research, deeply researched, intelligently debated. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I want. Back and forth, I wanted mm-hmm. debate, but what I didn't want was just people derailing things with nonsense. Mm-hmm. So we've had Trump talk about fake news, fake news, some of which is confirmation bias and tribalism, yeah. Yeah. and some of which is just people purposefully trying. Yeah, to actual bad intent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's there's a couple of guides online mm-hmm. which I've posted on the blog mm-hmm. as a. See, it's it's the guide to disrupting social forums. They're they're actually out there, yeah, yeah. and they're out of the CIA black book to how to go disrupt society. Yeah, right.
2: It's misinformation as a tactic. Yeah, and so there's there's an interesting thing here where we we've had this escalation. So first we had, um, you know what the internet always had ordinary trolls, right? Just people saying like I I don't I, I, because I can hide behind my anonymity or relative right. anonymity. I can be transgressive in this way where I'm just being the person who's like, you know, ruining things for people. But but in a way that I think they think it's entertaining. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's sort of like it's annoying, but it's not a big deal. And if you can ban them, that's fine. The evolution of that into organized communities that are trying to undermine other communities or undermine individual people who are trying to communicate by misinformation, by personal attacks, by threats, by all that sort of these tactics I think people don't understand that these have gotten very organized and very yes. structured. As you said, there are guides to how to do it, and so they say, "Well, why don't you just ignore it? Well, if you don't, you know, get not off just the Russians too, yeah, o- yeah, 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 totally. I mean, whether whether it's you know, the GamerGate or, or or the men's rights activists, like there are a lot of communities that were doing this online, and and the interesting thing about this is one, they they learn from each other. They've been mm-hmm. evolving this over ten or fifteen years. Uh, they are very organized, but they organize in places that people aren't watching. So they're happening on, you know, some obscure know, subreddit 4chan. or a four chan yeah. I mean, those are the ones that people know. But there's also just private channels. Uh-huh. You know, they can text each other like anybody else. Like they're they're not you know they're very technically literate. And so what happens is people who are not sophisticated in these things think, well, okay, look, if this person is being a jerk to you online. Why don't you just not go on Twitter or why don't you just not, you know, don't worry about it, delete their comment or kind of thing. And it's like, well, the difference is when you have people organizing, trying to undermine a specific community, um, just ignoring it doesn't make it go away. Right. That's right. And, and the, the the social cost of, for example, saying just get off of social media or don't go on Twitter or don't go on whatever. It's like, well, that's, you know, if I work in media, I work in publishing, I work in tech, it's a business tool. I need that. I need to have a presence there. Tran- so you-
1: translate the digital version of that into meat space. It's that's sort right. of like saying don't go to the town square. Yeah. Don't yeah. don't go to the school, don't go to the theater. Oh, right. And and it's it's a ridiculous it, it, that's statement. That's exactly
2: right. When you take like, you know, YouTube comments, I think they're getting a little better but notoriously terrible. And if you said I'm going to go to Google's lobby in, mm-hmm. in Mountain View and I'm going to start shouting epithets at people. They're not going to be like, have a seat, have some of our free right. lunch. They're going to be like, no, you you got to stop doing that or we're going to kick you out.
1: The, my my re- explanation of it was if you have a cocktail party, A, you get to invite who comes, mm-hmm. and B, someone starts flipping over tables, you get to throw them out. It's mm-hmm. not like – well, the, uh, the thing that makes me incensed about this is that they scream First Amendment, and my response is always – Nothing is stopping you yeah. from going and starting Get your own, your own blog yeah. and laboriously building it, other than the fact that you're a lazy, untalented wanker. Other yeah, yeah, than that, yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the you, other thing feel is they,
2: they don't want to do that. They're not trying to create something; they're trying to destroy something. Right? Exactly. And, and I think that that there's a really there's a tough challenge where um, you know you, you can express yourself however you want. You're not entitled to destroy my platform. And am and,
1: I community? Yeah. Am
2: I back and forth? Yeah, and 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 it, and it's an interesting thing because there's also we, I think especially technical people have this desire to say I want one set of rules that applies to everybody, and I want this one set of you know this behavior is always bad if you do this. If if then right sort exactly of X, exactly y, exactly binary logic like right. the stuff that that, but that doesn't always work and Sometimes. and it ignores the realities of society, which which is that people have different positions roles power all these things shape the dynamics and the example I always give is the sort of like. The classic, you know, one of the, the worst things that people do to threaten people who are on the margins, who are vulnerable, or have ideas that are unpopular, uh, you know, is they're going to, we're going to expose you. We're going to, we're going to, you know, what they call doxing. We're going to publish your home address. I mean, I've had this happen to me, you know, the Gamer Gators published my home address.
1: Don't you like have that. your phone number on your... I do. I, I thought that was insane when I you know, saw You know, so
2: that. there's an interesting thing where part of it is about reclaiming, like, I'm going to control this stuff, and right. I'm going to put what's out there. Um, some of it is I, I do want to show people of good intent I am accessible mm-hmm. I'm not trying to hide something I'm not trying to be you know wall myself off from because I do think most people are good and do want to engage with ideas and want to be thoughtful and so that's so some of that is just signaling like I'm open to that then there's this other part which is so there's a the behavior where like if somebody is like legitimately vulnerable and they are keeping themselves anonymous or pseudonymous in order to to keep themselves safe and you out them that's a real danger hmm on the other hand, if you say, the person who did this transgressive thing, this dangerous thing, who posted this threat, I'm gonna identify them, that is actually protecting people, right? So the exact same activity, if I'm gonna identify this person who's trying to hide, can be both very good or very bad. It can be very much a positive that helps society, or it can be very negative because you're making somebody vulnerable. And so the logic of what a, I think a lot of programmers tend toward, like if you do this rule, you're bad. If you follow this, if you break this rule, you're bad. It ignores power, it ignores the dynamics of, of society, and that's why we keep bumping into the, what seem like really obvious screw ups in mm-hmm. tech where we're like, how come you can't make a civil place? It's like
1: you're not going to be able to regulate human behavior with a single binary set of rules. Let's talk a little bit about diversity and inclusion. This sure. is. All over the uh, You were way, way ahead of the curve on this. Yeah. We have the CEO of uh, Uber being mm-hmm. forced out. Yeah. We have a number of VCs having to step down, yeah. either from the boards that they serve on or from their own companies. Yeah. Uh, it looks like the the bro culture in Silicon Valley is is coming to an end. Uh, tell us a little bit about your perspective on diversity and inclusion in, in the world of technology. So, th- there's definitely
2: a moment of reckoning going on right now. And I, for me, ten years ago, I was just—I had been in Silicon Valley a couple of years, um, even though I've been in tech 20 years. I'd spent a couple of years.
1: What year? Because you're really—I mm-hmm. uh, know a you Yorker. as a New Yorker. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you—when did you were you I, here? When we, you were we there? We were doing
2: six apart, and the company was growing. And I went out to uh, San Francisco in 2004, mm-hmm. and I was there until 2007, and really one of the drivers for me of sort of being done with being in silicon valley and being in san francisco was it felt so homogenous and really? and and yeah it just you know well after, i think i'd been spoiled i'd been in new york i'd worked in media i would worked in publishing pot, no matter how you, yeah, where you yeah, are yeah, it's yeah. there's just, so many and you know and i had people that, you know that were friends that were outside of, of tech and they were in other disciplines so they could be in fashion they could be in mm-hmm. media they could be in in you know finance whatever it was and you just get a different view of the world And it was astonishing to me, is like with all the problems that, you know, say the entertainment industry had, they were still much more inclusive and much more diverse. And so to go into conference rooms, boardrooms, meeting rooms in Silicon Valley and look around and be like essentially, this is just a bunch of white and Asian guys. Right. And that doesn't it,
1: count as diversity,
2: you know. Well, and it's interesting because it's it's, it's particularly complicated being Asian American, where we're overrepresented in tech, right? You know, like we overindex. We're two percent of the population, and yet, you know, you look at just Indian American, you know, people in tech. CEO of Google, CEO of Microsoft, CEO of Adobe. These are all Indian guys. So like we're doing fine, <laughs> and yet, you know, like I said, being in media, publishing, entertainment, I was like. I know that there are Black and Latino folks in California. You can't tell me they're not there. And yet, you go to these offices, and it wasn't just technical staff; it was the, lo- the, the legal staff, the marketing staff, the mm-hmm. you know everything, every one of these roles. The representation was
1: way out of whack mm-hmm. to a, a point where you just couldn't ignore it anymore. The, the number that was in in one of your columns: California's Hispanic population is thirty nine percent. The average percentage of uh, employees in tech companies headquartered there is less than 5%. Google is 3%. And if you look at the industry average for women, it's only a third of employees are women when more than half of the population are women.
2: Right. And so so there's just this proportionality where you're like, at a certain point, you can say, okay, it's not going to exactly match. Of course not. But – you it's got to be ballpark. If you take forty percent, you say, "Well, we, we looked at forty percent of the population. and We could only find three percent of our staff that could meet our requirements." you so like, "I don't, bu- I just don't buy it. Right. It's just the math doesn't add up." Now,
1: the the pushback to that is, "Hey, you know, you mentioned India, mm-hmm. huge technical training, engineering, right. mathematics, science, uh, India Institute of Technology. Go down the list. Yes, T- just tremendous." Uh, and my other favorite stat is half of the C suite in Silicon Valley are immigrants. So yeah, there's yeah. clearly yeah. some recognition of meritocracy, at least in theory. Th-
2: that's the ideal. And I mean I could not be more pro immigrant. My parents are immigrants. They're here because, you know, you know, they were willing to do the work and get educated and, and, and you know, I'm incredibly proud to be in that, you know, of that descent and in that tradition. That being said, You look at the cost for paying for an H-1B, for paying for the lawyers to bring somebody Mm -hmm. over here, for paying for all these things. To bring those workers over here is a huge investment for these companies. Huge. And for the same amount of money, you could train workers here, and they're not. And you could train people from the underrepresented communities. That so you what's say the you thinking
1: behind that? That's a sure thing, and training them is a risk? I, or? You know,
2: well, I think there's a lot of factors. I think one of them is you know, H-1B workers can never organize or really complain. Because right. if you, you know, essentially, if you get too uppity, you lose your job, you get deported. And then you're not sending money back to your family or to right. your village or whatever else. So the, the amount of leverage they have over these workers is incredible. Um, I I have to think that's a factor. You know, you look at uh, particularly in the case of like there was um, this collusion orchestrated by Steve Jobs and and Eric Schmidt.
1: Google, Apple, Uh, Amazon. Yeah, 14
2: of the biggest tech companies. Everybody essentially except for Facebook um, colluded against their own workers, right, to depress their wages by saying we're not going to poach each other's workers. And um, which is still astonishing to me. And, if you and think, there was no, almost no ramifications. This is the amazing thing, that, is, that, is the workers, like, there was a sort of obligatory lawsuit. I think it was for $8 billion or something. They settled it for a tiny pittance of that. Which the lawyers, the lawyers keep took most all of, that. Right. yeah. And, you know, the people at Apple who went through this, I talked to people that worked there, and they were like, yeah, I still just really love and revere Steve. And I'm like, the guy took money out of your kid's college fund, <laughs> and you're like, I, he seems like a nice guy. I'm like, what would he have to do? For you to be like, I'm not gonna, you know, follow along with this.
1: He'd have and- to remove the headphone jack from the <laughs> iPhone, and then that is a bridge too far. Right, that's the line, that's the uh, Rubicon.
2: And what you real, what you realize is. You know, one there's that reverence. Two, they're like, oh, "Who am I to complain? I am getting a good salary. I am being paid well." And what they don't see is common cause with those H one B workers, right. or common cause with the, you know, the contractors. I say contractors in quotes, who are providing the meals, driving the, the 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 shuttles to the office, and giving them those free massages. All those things are presented as perks. Oh, you get free lunch. and You get these things. Like, those are people. Right. Those are workers, and they never get equity in these companies. And and so what you realize is there's this sort of you know, this class system built in that—and um, I'm just a big believer in, like, you got to treat your people well. And they certainly have the money to do it. And they didn't need to nickel and dime their workers. They didn't yeah, that's kind of cool odd because
1: there was no reason They have for more it. cash than they know. All these companies have yeah. more cash what they do with it. Billions, billions I have to point out that the only reason Facebook did not participate in it— mm is A, they were too young for when that deal was originally made. <laughs> small. And B, they were busy raiding Google for some of their favorite engineers, mm-hmm. So, as well as Apple. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what Fog Creek mm-hmm. is doing before we have you uh, repair Twitter. Sure. Tell me what tell us about uh, Glitch and some of the other products sure. Fog Creek is so working So Fog on. Creek
2: is a very storied company. It's been around 17 years. Brilliant co-founders, Joel Spolsky and Michael Pryor. And what they always wanted to build was, one, a great place for, like, people who want to make the most interesting technology to come work. And it's been a very influential company that has spun out. Um, they co-created Stack Overflow, which is a community that mm-hmm. pretty much every coder in the world uses to answer their questions about programming.
1: Did that eventually become like a, a, a white-labeled version where if you want to set up your own internal Q&A? Um, you, you can do that, yeah, for sure. Stack Overflow has a, has an enterprise product for that.
2: I'm on, I'm still on the board of Stack, so I get to see a lot of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And And the bigger thing to me is you have this community where tens of millions of coders around the world come and answer each other's questions in this really collaborative way. Um, And and interestingly, it's a very, you know, reassuring, nurturing, supportive environment. People really get answers right away. No problem with trolls or disruption. No, and, and, you know, like, I think historically one of the biggest challenges was they weren't probably friendly enough to newbies because they were like, you have to phrase your question the right way and it has to be, you know, exactly right. I think that's starting to ease up a little bit as the sort of, you know, the community evolves into being more welcoming. But the key thing is, there's never been wide-scale harassment there's never Uh been wide-scale abuse and that's with a site that is probably in the top 40 websites in the world in terms of traffic so Uh it's it's possible to make a large site that works well so 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 stack was co-created with uh, jeff atwood and his team and that spun out it's an independent company uh they made a project management tool trello which lots of people use it's really mm -hmm. popular and that spun out um and atlassian bought that so there's this track record of making these wildly successful products and you know, I, I they uh, approached me about taking over as CEO last year, and I said, "Well, you know, what's what's coming down the pipe?" And I saw what became Glitch that we launched earlier this year, and I was just blown away. I think it's one of the most revolutionary products I've seen in my life, like in my whole tech. Really, career. Yeah. what what does Glitch do? And so, what Glitch is is uh, very simply, it's a it's a programming environment where you can go and write code. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a couple things it does that nobody's done before. The first is, as you type, it's automatically taking the code you're writing, the app that you're creating, and publishing it live to the web. Mm -hmm. That sounds trivial, but that's, you know, you take entire businesses like Amazon's web services hosting business or Heroku, uh, uh, which is sort of beloved by coders, and the whole process of getting an app live onto the web is really hard. It's become very complicated. To do it completely automatically in the background is a radical change.
1: So is this an app when, when we talk about apps? I think about the App Store and the Android Store. These are that- right
2: now web apps. So this is things you go to in your browser. So, If uh-huh. you want to make a little, you know, a, a simple app for your business, you're going to make an expensing app for your, your team to use or you make a to-do list app or something like that. It can be as complicated as you want. But the problem is that process of like, even if you knew how to write the code and you'd built that whole thing yourself, just getting it onto the web was a lot of work. And it was mm-hmm. just a pain. So we took all that away, and that was step one. Step two was your entire coding environment, everything just lives in the browser. And that's easier for the same reason that like you like to use Gmail instead of having a, a mail app on your on your computer. It's, like, it's just there. Whatever computer I log into, all my stuff is there. Those alone were a big leap forward. The biggest things that happened, the two things that sort of came out earlier this year, was the first is we made almost an, an app store, a catalog of all the different apps people had built. And you could remix any of them. So Mm -hmm. say somebody already made a to do list app and you say, well, that's nice, but I want to be blue instead of green. You go in there, you edit it. That's instantly yours. You can remix it, do whatever you want to with it. So it's really the power, the promise of open source that we've had for many years. Mm -hmm. And then the thing that blew my mind when I saw the team had built it was you can edit this code in real time with other people.
1: So, like Google Docs. I was about to say that makes me think of Google Docs, yeah. but for applications, exactly for web embedded applications.
2: That's exactly it. So nobody has made that kind of powerful, real programming environment that you that is multiplayer. multiplayer. What, what's the business in. model
1: on this? Are you selling it to enterprise? <laughs> there's or? there's
2: a couple parts to it. Um, the 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 first thing we're doing is it, um, incidental to the fact that you can code at the same time as other people. Glitch is an incredible learning tool, teaching tool, mm-hmm. because you can help people. So right now, all of the big companies have what they call their APIs, Application Programming Interface. And this is the way that you build services on top of Stripe for payments or Twilio for messages or um, you know, Twitter for sending messages, obviously. And um, But it's really hard for them to get developers to try out their tools. So if you say, we have a new developer platform and we want people to use it. For example, Amazon has skills for the Alexa. Right. You want to make new commands that work there. Or Slack has bots in their messaging app. They're desperate to we get that. We just developed. added a whole bunch of Slack bots. Yeah, and, and, and they're handy.
1: Birthdays. And, exactly. Oh, it's so just really interesting it, it, and Now stuff. you see
2: that and you're like, wow, I wish it would talk to this other system we're using. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I can never do that. That's too hard. Mm-hmm. The process with Glitch now is we've got a sample uh, Slack bot for you. You go and you remix it, you change the part that just works for your system to be exactly what you want it to be, and it's instantly up and running. So we take the time to develop a Slack bot or Alexa skill from uh, days or hours into minutes. And that is something that's enormously valuable all these companies that have sure. these platforms. So they want to use it um, and be able to p- pay to do a couple different things. The key one is supporting developers creating these things. Mm-hmm. So right now, if you're like, I want to build on uh, you know Alexa's skill set from Amazon. So it's
1: Amazon buying this or, or Twitter yeah. buying this, yeah. not necessarily an enterprise yeah. company to create their own unique...
2: Well, Apps. everybody's desperate to make things easier for developers because developers are so in demand and it's mm-hmm. so rare to get them to pay attention to your platform. And I look at it, there's a, a search tool called Algolia that I just love it. It was one of those, search is really hard to do well. Uh-huh. You know, like, I'm not Google. I'm not going to figure this thing out. I had always been interested in trying it. And I thought, oh, yeah, if I could tie that search feature into my app, it'd be really useful. And I was like, but I, you know, I'm running a company. I'm busy. I don't have time to learn all this stuff, even if I got a little bit of coding skills. Now I can go remix an example app from Algolia that already has search working. Just plug in the parts that I want to into my own app and be up and running instantly. That was something where I was like, it took it from, it would be cool to try this out. I have this intent of learning this programming skill into I can deploy it instantly. And the biggest thing I see is the coders who we show it to like their eyes light up. Like it looks like Christmas morning for them, and I'm like, that is a really good sign that we are on to something something big with Glitch.
1: So that sounds really fascinating. You you mentioned Twitter earlier. Let let's mm-hmm. talk about what you would do to fix Twitter. <laughs> I, I, I've been amazed that they, while there have been a series of updates and they continue to improve the interface and some of the general behaviors, mm-hmm. the broader concept behind community, they just can't seem to wrap their, their heads around it's a hard thing I, and I, I I do have a lot of empathy
2: for the team I do think they're trying but I think you know it was so long for them to turn the ship around to really addressing a lot of the issues that, That's that the people question. don't believe in it
1: why Why did it take so long for them to notice that they had a giant harassment problem you know I think there's a there's a lot of reasons for that I, I um one of the, the, the key issues is
2: um, who feels the pain Right. So we talk about the inclusion and diversity issue in tech. Mm-hmm. And you know, Twitter is like most of the tech companies. It doesn't have a lot of people from you know uh, black and Latino communities. It doesn't have as many women. And guess who gets targeted by the majority of the harassment
1: online? See, I haven't uh, – let me stop you there because as a white dude in New York City, perhaps I'm not experiencing the same mm. thing. However, and I'm kind of thick-skinned. I'm, <laughs> I'm more annoyed by the – Failed logical deduction yeah, and yeah, people calling yeah. me ugly. Right, but what I what I'm amazed at is, and I'm 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 seeing all this harassment mostly on a partisan basis, name mm. calling and and stupidity, yeah. just craziness, which I think discourages new you. Oh, I don't want to go there. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah absolutely. And, and so it, it's a little moderate. In Facebook, because people have to use yeah. theoretically are using their real names, mm-hmm. or otherwise they have to go through a whole process of creating a fake name. And yep. I know people certainly do that, but but there's some barriers, right? It, it's harder to do. So, what would you do to fix fix Twitter? Yeah, there are a
2: couple things. I, I I actually wrote a piece back in uh, on January 1st. Uh, Jack Dorsey asked, I guess the whole internet, like, yes. what, how would you how would you fix Twitter? And I, and I, there were a couple things I wrote in there, and um, the more Cogent ones, one of which was um, show people you know how to update the service and update the apps. Just the ability to iterate and introduce new things Mm -hmm. would introduce a lot of trust into the platform because they hadn't shipped any features. They hadn't updated anything. So you can make whatever proclamations you want to about we're fixing abuse, we're fixing harassment, we're adding better features or filtering or whatever – and people won't believe it because, like, well, the thing hasn't changed at all in a long time, you know. And, and in fact, they were killing off things like Vine that was really right. great and creative and interesting and didn't have a harassment problem. And, and, and you know, so you say, OK, well, these, these things that make you feel good and those are getting killed. Right. And the things that are making me feel terrible, you're you're you know, doubling down on. So, one, I think they've gotten better at that. They've sort of started shipping more. Two is to sort of be really clear about a harassment policy. So instead of these nebulous, vague rules, like we have to see, like this person who's very obviously transgressing, being abusive and horrible to people, um, we got to see their account get suspended. I, that
1: I, that happened not too long ago. I forgot his name. He's a fairly uh, Milos. Yeah. Janopoulos. Am I correct? Uh, Milo Yiannopoulos. Right, uh, notorious troll yeah. and harasser, and he finally again. You have to go so far, so repeatedly right. before your account is well, suspended. Well,
2: it's also not, not just that, that he transgressed so frequently, so often, that he was openly explicit about the fact he was trying to harass people,
1: right? You know, and like, these are the things where it's like, this is a... Uh, um, but the fact that he stands out as, as someone who was banned, and there isn't... First of all, there's a boatload of bots, just yeah. insane yeah. amounts. of I assume half my Twitter followers are software. Mm. Yeah. algos. And then on top of that, it seems that there are some people that are just, you know, calls to violence and yeah. just all sorts of, like, how do they tolerate this? I, I think one of the things that's easy to lose track of outside of Silicon
2: Valley is how extreme they are about some of some parts of libertarianism around these views, right? So they're very like, Everything is free speech. Everything is fair spe- you know, to, fair game to put no out No one's saying
1: you, you can't do this, but we're a private company. <laughs> right. This is our product, and you could go do this elsewhere. Oh, well, you're, free, th- you're free to be obnoxious and offensive wherever you
0: want, yeah. just not in our private uh, community. Well, the interesting thing— When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting, you can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. I think there's a couple parts they
2: sort of ignore. One of which is, you know, the argu- There's often the argument of that technically it's too hard to limit these things. I say, well, listen, that's nonsense. And I say, listen, you know, go ahead and upload a Beyonce MP3. Watch how quickly and see how quickly they can detect that. So, right. like, the tech is there, right? For sure, like, it, it, it's not harder to detect, you know, a sound signature and a song than it is text, right? Uh, this is right. An, a racial epithet. Here are
1: key phrases. Right. Here's, exactly. la- I mean, it that it, should be pretty easy. And especially in easy. the machine
2: learning is making leaps right. and bounds and, and advancements. Like, that can be something where you can get better at.
1: Right. AI should really be all over and that. And I think that is starting to seep
2: into Twitter a little bit. They're getting a little bit better at hiding and flagging things. Um, and it's hard to say. But that's part of it is they need to communicate clearly about it. The, the, the other part is... Um, you know, we always talk about the free speech for the people who are harassing and abusing, but what they do is they chase off right vulnerable voices. And what right. about the free speech of the people who the are the chilling effect? Exactly. And I see this where, like, I you know, I have extremely thick skin. I am a loud mouth all the time, so like, I'm 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 pretty hard to shut up. There are times when you get to the worst of a you know a, a mob of people coming after you, and they're you know targeting you, your friends, your family, your coworkers. And you just say, enough, I'm going to put this away. And like, if I can go through that with all I, as fortunate and privileged as I am with as much of a network as I have to be able to be like, sometimes it's too much people who aren't as lucky as I am and don't have that support network behind them can easily be hounded out off of this network. And it's like their speech matters too. And I, I care a lot more about the people who are targeted, you know, unfair, fairly for harassment. I care a lot more about their free speech than the people who are saying horrible things to
1: them. We have been speaking to Anil Dash of Fog Creek Software. Uh, If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras where we keep the tape running and continue to discuss all things technology. Be sure to check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast, Anil. Thank you for doing this and appreciate you being for so so generous with your time. Happy to be here. We, we were talking during the, um, during the break about the blocking problem on, mm-hmm. on Twitter, and you mentioned the service Yeah. That so, I'm so, intrigued well, Twitter
2: by it. has its own service for importing and exporting lists of blocks, but mm-hmm. it's not very well integrated. There is a site called Block Together uh-huh. that uh, actually a bunch of activists made that gives you the tools to share a block list with your friends really? and, or to subscribe to theirs. And uh, and it's really handy because then you don't have to individually block a whole community of people that are trying to troll or harass you. So
1: if you're looking to, so I, I break the world into three categories of of people, and I, we'll we'll keep this relatively PG. But <laughs> there there are the folks who are just simply misinformed, mm-hmm. and I've learned if you give somebody a fact that challenges their misunderstanding, it doesn't doesn't help them. And they double down. So so what I always do with that group of people is. You should find the data source for the Your BLS, assertion. right? And if you could, if you can f- prove to me that what you're, you're saying is correct, I'll write a column on it. Right. And either I'll, because if they follow me, I could DM them. Yep. yep. And then subsequently delete the DM so they can't harangue me on direct message. <laughs> and I'll I'll give them a not so much a homework assignment, but if you really believe mm-hmm. this steaming pile of nonsense you've shared. <laughs> I'm not asking you to create a persuasive argument, just show any me evidence. your data source, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so that's a that's the sort of gentle nudge. The next level are people who are just kind of ideologically broken. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is no concept of of beyond not having any data any data that contradicts their beliefs their ideology mm-hmm. just pure cognitive dissonance they'll just and, reject it outright right and and for them but not but not venal but not vicious just mm-hmm. uh, philosophically askew on top of not being evidence based and mm-hmm. so now you know i, I really cuz i start I'll, I'll look at something and i'll go down the rabbit hole and it's like yeah, yeah. oh okay i know this is You know, all roads lead to Breitbart and Drudge and a bunch of – And there's some versions of that on the left as well. Mm. Some of the early – I'm trying to remember the the sites. Salon could be a little over the top, and then there's another one on the left.
2: And I I mean, I think they can be wrong or exaggerated, but they very seldom inspire a mob to go target people.
1: Uh, That's for sure. But as somebody who works in finance, I can't afford to have a stream of dead – Bad memes and misinformation and myths. So, right. I just want to cut. So, those people get muted. Yep. But the aggressive, mm-hmm. like, I'm wrong and I'm going to be aggressive about it. Yeah. Um, and obnoxious about it and offensive about it. I'm sorry. Those folks have to be blocked. Mm-hmm. I didn't know Block Together even existed. Yeah, yeah. My only concern is how do I not. So I've noticed some crazy Trumpers lately. Sure. Right? At one point in time, it was other crazies. Mm -hmm. But I don't mean people who are pro-Trump or anti-Trump. I have friends in the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. Anthony Scaramucci is a buddy of mine. We've had very civil debates Mm -hmm. about Trump. Someone in my office is a Trump supporter. She and I have had very rational adult discussions. Mm -hmm. That online just... There's something tribal and partisan mm-hmm. that people lose their mind. So, and I'll give you a perfect example. This weekend, I discovered that Jenna Jameson, the former yeah. adult film star, is kind of like a wild. She's way out there, yeah. Uh, just listen. There, there is some extreme behavior in her history. So, yeah, yeah. but I never expected that to tip into. Wild ideological, and it was just kind of random that I found uh, it.
2: Yeah, she's amplified white supremacists. I mean, there's there's Uh, yeah, it's a sort
1: of surprising. Uh, You know, I think. um... So how do you how do you block the people that you want to block? Yet at the same time, not block. So so, (laughs) I can't say it on the radio, but there was a science. Thing about something happening in one of the gas giants in outer space, mm-hmm. about a subsequent probe. Uh, I won't even go there. Sure. And she just retweeted it, at least buy me dinner first, and I just found that hilarious. That mm. I was looking for something science and right. Yeah. Uh, Phil Plate uh, yeah, yeah. does does bad a uh, bad, bad astronomy exactly. Yeah. And from that led to this led to that. So I don't want to – the beauty of the web is the random – The serendipity. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you block people on a a list like um, Block Together and not – lose that random I, I, you
2: know what I, I want there are going to be some false positives but that already right. happens in email that already happens sure. in, in everything right i mean but you can at least check filters, your spam list yeah exactly but yeah but it's the same thing like if you really i mean you know somebody's go blocked, through the block yeah list. exactly you can just go and, and vet it like if you're like i really want to see this tweet but i have this person blocked you just unblock them right so there's nothing to that i think what what is key is like being able to use a service where like it's not it's not some huge barrier Right, mm-hmm. if you block somebody, they can still see your tweets if they want sure, to. Sure, they, they just, just don't have to be logged in. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it's not like this is some impermeable barrier. All it's doing is making it harder for a mob of harassers to target you. Right. And that's really useful. Like for me, it's like like if I'm like whatever out with my kid and you know, we're doing fun stuff on the weekend and it happens to be the moment when like a mob of white supremacists has decided they want to come after me for something I wrote. And, and the thing is like they'll go digging back through your history. So it could be something I wrote years ago. Um, and I'm getting notifications on my phone while I'm out right. with my kid, and ding, I'm like, ding, I ding, like ding, yeah, ding, exactly. Ding. And I like, I don't want to be distracted by this. If I can just go and find somebody who's already got a good block list and just share it, and be like, oh, okay, good. I've been able to sort of cut this off. Done. It's it's a no brainer. Like, why would can you, you do search
1: that? for a block list by a specific? Hey, um, this, no, it's really find just me by block a list with this person, and then I'll share.
2: It's just a person. Yeah, so you go by like a individual Twitter user who you trust, and you. Sort no,
1: of share no, I mean the opposite. Yeah. I want to block. Oh, Jimmy is, Dean. You know, and then who I, else I don't is think blocked? So, I don't think so. And part
2: like they—they've been very thoughtful about it, where they—they don't—they don't encourage sort of willy-nilly blocking. Like it's really right. about sort of sharing with the community and doing, and and, and people having human judgment involved in it. And so uh-huh. I think that's really good. And and you can, um, and you can also go and search for like people that you, um, follow who do have lists. And so like those things are very handy. I think Twitter's going to evolve their tools too. But the key is that like, um, there's a there's a really valid. Use to blocking people that we learn from again, like I always think digital communities need to learn from physical communities, uh-huh. right? And there's a reason why we sort of say, like, you can't come into this coffee shop if you're going to shout at people, and you can't, right. you know, come into this lobby if you're going to be acting this way and being shouting a play- fire in a crowded theater, exactly. Is a classic right. example, and so being able to have analogous tools for sort of just limiting really, really antisocial behavior mm-hmm. uh, I think is really useful. And I'm glad that, like, the tools are starting to evolve. I think it's a shame they're happening by, like, activists self-funding themselves building it as opposed to the platforms building it in the first so, party.
1: So are we just going to end up with ideologically opposed left blocks and right blocks? Or uh, is are, it really, is the unifying factor antisocial behavior?
2: I think it's antisocial behavior. There are people that do that, of course, that are like ignore anybody who disagrees with them politically, but they were already doing that. Like right. They don't need software to do that. If you're right. the kind of person that can't deal with dissenting ideas the The block was not the issue. The interesting thing that's happening rhetorically now is where I'm like, I don't want to interact with, for example, like white supremacists online. Why is that? And, uh, <laughs> go figure, right? <laughs> and they'll come back to me and be like, "Oh, you can't handle political dissent." It's snowflake.
1: Like, I really. Yeah, exactly. I love the expression "snowflake." Yeah, it, because it's all massive projection. Because the slightest challenge oh, gosh, and they yeah, just so fragile. melt, right? And
2: and 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 I'm just like, you know what? Like I like I'm tough as nails. I have no question about that. Like, I know what I've been through and I know, you know, what I'm able to do. I'm just like, why would I want to deal with you? Right. This is like, this is an elective thing. It's about me having good judgment and discernment where I'm like, you're a person who acts obnoxious online all day. Why would I put, like, I'm not working. That's That's not the idea I'm working to engage with. Like, if you think (laughs) that the only way that your ideas can be represented in culture is by you acting like a monster all day. Right. Lighting Maybe, it on
1: fire and throwing it exactly. into a then, school bus. Then that your ideas work. probably
2: aren't that good. Right. You know, and, and it's like, I, it's not that I'm not intellectually curious. I know I am. I'm very interested in having my assumptions challenged and learning things. Like, I, I am very much like, I, I love that idea of like, I had to change my mind because I was wrong about the way I thought about this. thing. Like, I love that feeling. Uh, it doesn't come from somebody saying like why screaming
0: epithets exactly
2: at you. like why the fact that like my family is multiracial is wrong like that is never gonna be the thing that I'm like wow
1: I've seen the light you know we used to have laws against that sort of stuff back <laughs> in the good old days it's yeah. uh, it's it's amazing you know when I get the requests through a colleague hey you block so-and-so. Mm. so and so so. Uh, Now the process is I'll go look at their, Mm. not only their tweet stream, but their tweets and replies because I want to see how they're interacting. That's right. And I say to people, listen, life is too short. Yeah. You're not a good person. Uh, there's 8 billion people right. most of whom are half decent and well intentioned yes. some may be misguided right. but i don't need venal jerks yeah. in my nobody needs no, venal li- jerks li- no life, life is too short and i got too right. much
2: left to learn to spend my that's time right. fighting with a stranger that really wants to fight more than they want to learn
1: right that's right you know one of the beauties of of going to law school is mo- moot court yeah. and the best part about moot court is you have to be able to switch hats and argue either side mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. any litigation uh, literally mid case. You yeah, could be yeah. all right now. So I've always taken that as a as a sign of intellectual openness. Mm-hmm. Having the ability to see all sides of an issue, of a problem, what have you, prevents you from uh, turning your your opponent into a, a subhuman. It it, yeah, it, yeah. it it keeps the discussion rational because. Hey, things that are really, really, at least in court, things that are really one-sided, those cases settle. Yeah. yeah. But where there's a legitimate debate, let's have the debate. Yeah. And unfortunately, too many people uh, just can't imagine the other side of the discussion. And that's amazing.
2: Yeah, and I'm very, you know, my my mother's family's all lawyers, and I'm sort of, you know, raised that. I'm so that, sorry. That, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it's interesting. They were both, um, some were criminal defense lawyers. And, and then um, my great-grandfather was involved in the Indian Independence Movement. He marched with mm-hmm. Gandhi and was sort of very really? involved in, in civil rights and social justice. Was and he so, a big blogger back then or no? <laughs> well, You know, what's interesting is they had a printing press at the house. Oh, no kidding. And so there is so this he tradition was. of like, how do you use your own you know, platform to platform to technology get ideas out there? Exactly. To get ideas Right, yeah. So, you know, a century ago, that was cutting-edge technology uh, to be able to have in a rural, very, very poor part of India. And so... Yeah, I, I think there is this idea of how do you debate ideas using cutting edge platforms to get your ideas out there and advancing the, the cause of social justice. And I think those are things that, um, you know, you don't think about consciously as a kid, but they sort of seep in into your mind. And and so there was always a healthy debate about how to, how to do these things. I mean, you know, like especially you look at this is still true today civil rights movements always have these big schisms within them of like what well, how how radical do we want to be and what's the right way to approach this and you know do we change the system from the inside or do we you know try to tear it down from the outside and those kinds of debates i think those are fascinating and timeless debates and i'm always happy to engage in those the people who are like i want to personally you know hurt you or or, or I want to uh, uh, attack you and, and, and that's the only way to advance my ideas. I'm like, oh, that's never that's never going to be the thing that that persuades me or that makes me see the light. And it certainly doesn't indicate much confidence in that person's argument anyway.
1: You know, I, I've gone back and looked at some old blog posts that I could see are out of frustration mm-hmm. where, I don't want to say I just called other people <laughs> idiots, but I would look at, at their position and, and First, try and take it apart, and mm-hmm. and somewhere in the middle was a little bit of name calling would yeah, creep yeah, in, yeah. and then you'd catch yourself and move away from it. Yeah, how have you, uh, you more than any person I know have been at the vanguard of of seeing the arc of the blogosphere change over time. What what have you noticed? Um, how has this evolved? Do you plan on continuing blogging for forever? What yeah. what what are your thoughts on? Yeah.
2: Uh, you know, I've learned a lot. I think um, it is. The, I definitely see when I look back at eighteen years of writing now um, that it is always this sort of ink blot test about where I'm at in my head. Mm-hmm. You go back and read it, and I can see exactly how I was feeling at the moment, even if I don't remember writing it. It's shocking, how, isn't it? You're I'm like, like, oh, oh wow, yeah. I was having a bad day that day, <laughs> you know, or, or or wow, I was really in a good mood, right? And and That's and funny. you can really read that into you know, the work, I think that that's been really instructive. Cause like, I don't keep a, like a mood journal. And so I could be writing about like, whatever, a new update to windows came out when I used to blog about tech a lot. And I could still tell you exactly how I felt, uh-huh. you know, when I read it. I think that's really instructive. I think my attitude about dealing with, you know, people being aggressive or hostile online has, has changed a lot over the years. I think initially, um, you know, your, I think your first reaction is like, well, you know, screw you too, buddy, and you sort of right. go at them. I think I spent a long time trying to be like, I'm just gonna, you know, love you to death and that'll get you to change. And 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 I had some successes with that. I mean I have actually seen conversations where I changed somebody's mind or they changed my
1: mind. Or at least you get them to back down from the sort of yeah. over I think people's initial emails Like uh, it'd be great if email had like a 60 minute delay. Yeah. Like you can't respond instantly. So every now and then someone sends an email and if you give them a a big friendly hug and say, you Seems like
2: you're really upset.
1: Right. Or, or, Hey, I hope you're not missing the key point here. Here's my data source. What are you using to reach this conclusion? As often as not or not, Especially in the professional community. So my universe is finance. They'll back down. When someone gets it's not even they'll back down, it's like I've gotten hey, I appreciate you responding civilly, I was out of line. Like you say, Oh, these people are really professional and smart. He was just perturbed at something. Yeah, Yeah. it's yeah, it could be whatever. They you know,
2: they didn't eat lunch that day or or they have something else going on.
1: What what about the change in media? How has the blogosphere mm. impacted that in your perspective? Uh,
2: it, it is. It's interesting. I, I was such an idealist about blogging and social media when it came out. It's like we're going to give platforms that are going to give voice to people that don't have any other place to share their words, and that was true. That did
1: happen. The professional amateurs. Yeah, exactly. And who, who, even, who are no longer amateurs now? They're professional. Exactly, professionals. They're, they're just independent. Expert independent amateurs, media expert now. professionals. That's yes. right. And uh, I, I'm Exhibit A.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, I've been very lucky to benefit from that too. And I think that was true. And, and we kept saying, you know, the whatever, the mainstream media makes all these mistakes and now the social media will help correct it. And then we ignored or didn't anticipate the exact opposite, which was the times when mainstream media was exactly right and people would use social media to spread dif- disinformation. Uh, it inverted. Yeah. And, and the idea that, like, um, the people who didn't have access to get their voice out there, some of them would, would not use that power responsibly. Mm-hmm. We, I was such an optimist and idealist of like, wow, if we just give everybody a printing press, all they're going to print is good, thoughtful, true things. There you go. And, um, you know, that's not the case. And it was a um, a long, slow, painful lesson that I I know I personally took too long to learn. What's it, the
1: old quote? A, a lie is halfway around the world where the that, truth is still tying on its boots. Yeah, yeah. And um,
2: I think that was very naive on my part. And the amazing thing about it is it's, I felt like I was slow to get that lesson and slow to, to really build it into my work and the and the tools and the platforms I was creating. And yet, I think it still took even longer for the
1: people that made the Facebooks and Twitters of the world to get that lesson. And Because not I, only do they have to recognize it, they have to then recognize that it's a, an existential threat to their platform mm-hmm. and then create the tech to respond to well, it. Well,
2: and I was lucky in that we had built a product when we built blogging tools that people paid for, you paid for.
0: Right. Which, and, right.
2: You know, and so um, if you wanted to have a voice in a platform, you were going to directly support it and you were, had an investment in it. And so we weren't based on attention, we were not based on the ad model. Mm-hmm. And
1: um, so you didn't have to be outrageous. You didn't have to jump up and that's down the right. stream. You didn't have to have clickbait headlines. Well, and you, you won't believe
2: what slide three. Right. But even if you're going to do that, you were incentivized to build your audience on your terms but not just views at any cost, Uh you know, page views at any cost. And everybody else basically went with the ad model. Right. And I, you know, I was really adamantly against it. And I do think, you know, you see this sort of return to subscription models, right? The times, New York times is say like everybody, we want you to subscribe and pay for great journalism. All those things. This is this reaction to seeing the distorting effect that, that the major ad models have on, on web media. And, the Facebooks and Twitters and, and, you know, Instagrams of the world built models that were totally advertising-dependent and so get hyper-exaggerated into attention-getting models. And I think that's something that the, the publishers didn't understand how much that would skew their business. And it's interesting because in print, you know, there's one, there was more ad dollars to go around. Two, they were indirect models. Right. So the fact that you had a ton of classified ads might encourage you to have a real estate section, Mm -hmm. but it didn't make your news headlines more extreme about politics and about weather and
1: about whatever. Same thing with the automobile section. You That's go right. through each of the major sections of the Sunday New York Times, and they were advertisers, right? And it, so yeah. you have the uh, the theater section, the arts and arts and entertainment section, mm-hmm. real estate, automobiles. I don't know if they still have an automobile section. They
2: might. They might have killed it off. But e- even to that example, like the existence of an automobile section was a stop to advertisers, obviously. But it didn't skew the hard news reporting. Right. And so that was okay because you're like, okay, whatever. You've got to pay the bills. Of course, you have comics. You don't have comics because like you're like, this is important news for people. Like This makes people read and that gets the circulation up and that, that um, lets us do the hard news work. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that line goes away in web media. There isn't some like, well, you're going to come and read the car ads and that's going to support you reading the hard news. The hard news has to sell on its own. And so it gets more and more distorted and more and more exaggerated in order to get the, that attention because you're in this more and more extreme environment. Now,
1: that that's a BuzzFeed or maybe a Vox or something like that, but mm. that shouldn't be the Washington Post the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. It's all of them. There's no difference between those. Really? I,
2: I, I, yeah. I mean, you look at, like, the best reported stories on BuzzFeed are not different than the best reported stories on, you know, the Times or the Post. Like, when you do good journalism, like, there are... But not
1: m- necessarily the most read stories. No,
2: that's true. And there are more, you know... Cat pictures or lists that are subsidizing that journalism on the BuzzFeed <laughs> right. site than there are on you know the other sites, but like that's just a that's just a question of how you subsidize. Mm-hmm. You know, in the case of the Post or the, the Times or whatever, they're subsidizing through print subscriptions that are going to go away right. uh, as that audience uh, ages out.
1: Right. And I finally I finally dropped everything but the weekend edition of the New York Times because I would carry it to the office, I'd carry it home, and it would go. <laughs> Go into the recycle bin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the uh, the Wall Street Journal comes to the office, and it this way I don't have to take it home. It goes right into the recycle bin. Right. Uh, the way the Journal has their, and I think the Times is the same. If you do a digital subscription, the print edition is free. Yeah. What? what
2: yeah. Well, and this is all about the metrics and the numbers, right? For, so they for want, the advertiser, exactly. So they want to tell the advertiser we have this many print subscribers, even though all those people are just you know recycling. When does it.
1: that stop? When does that go? away? Next ten years. Ten years, no more newspapers. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, you know, t- for any practical purposes, there same, will be same one-offs. thing
1: with New Yorker. New Yorker, the digital subscription, yeah. and the digital plus um, print are the same price. So your initial reaction is, oh, well, this is more for the same price. I'll take that. Yeah. Then you have a stack of unread magazines. Yeah, yeah. It's pointless.
2: Well, it's like, yeah, unless you're going to the beach or something, you're not you're not looking at that print edition. And I see this all the time with people that, like I watch that have print subscriptions that are saying, okay, well, I found this article, but I'm going to read
1: it online. Now, I will tell you that when you thumb through a paper, you're going to find things that yeah. you're not for going to find on the great. digital. Yeah, yeah it, it's other than the ink on your hands and, right. and the fact that you're carrying around there's, there's,
2: n- there's no question the discovery experience on print media is good it, it is an interesting and unique thing and you find stuff you wouldn't find otherwise on mm-hmm. digital but that's also just a design challenge like it's not impossible to solve those problems in the digital realm they just haven't invested in doing so
1: so one of the things i've noticed in the arc of um of, of media has been how in the beginning, and I want to call that the mid-2000s, mm. they felt very comfortable lifting anything from print, anything from the blogosphere without attribution, yes. yeah. uh, just relentlessly. And and I started the read it here first. Mm-hmm. Here's the blog post from Monday. And, oh, look, this is what yeah. the Wall Street Journal had on Thursday. I would do screenshots side by side. Yeah,
2: I definitely had that with, with stuff I wrote about tech.
1: Right. then Then you send it to the editor and saying, I want you to know... That I'm going to keep doing this until you're free to call me. I have a professional title where I'm quoted in the media all the time. Write me a don't, check. <laughs> don't rip this off. Yeah. And if you do this more blatantly, I'm going to sick the lawyers on you because at a certain point you cross the line from mm-hmm. inspired by to copyright yeah. infringement. Yeah. And um, there was a – head. my favorite was a thing I did on terrestrial – radio mm-hmm. i'm a big music buff yeah and i, I just too. hated what clear channel was doing to music mm-hmm. and i did and you this, were right uh, right oh <laughs> three or four. it was way early yeah, yeah, yeah and then i think it was barons had this front pick cover story losing the signal and to their credit they didn't actually steal language but the structure and yeah yeah, yeah, yeah i was like a oh, wait a second this looks really really i didn't even notice it until a friend said hey barons ripped you off uh, what do you mean I'm, oh look at that Mm-hmm. It's um, and there are a couple of other people I won't mention their names who feel like they can take that, and yeah. it, it it's so first that was the first phase. The second phase was when the Wall Street Journal and New York Times and other mainstream media started rolling out blogs of their own. Mm-hmm. It, does this have any staying power? What? How do you see the role of a fast, not really very lightly edited? Get it out quickly. How do you see the role of that in mainstream media? I
2: think it depends on the vertical and you know, what what space you're covering and and um, how much reporting and 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 you know the original network sort of fuels it. Mm-hmm. There are there are great blogs done by mainstream media outlets that are usually written by somebody that has a great voice that knows the space really well, has their network, and um, can turn that into you know a story really quickly. And I look mm-hmm. at like. It actually, it wasn't a blog, but I look at, like, David Carr, what he had done at the Times. Uh-huh. Um, boy, I miss that guy. And, you know, he was very blog-like in the way even he wrote his print columns. Like very fast, turned things around, knew exactly who to call, connected the, the dots really, really well. Mm-hmm. I think that model can work, um, but very few of the major outlets have a business model for that. You can't hide the blog behind a paywall because that that ruins its point of linking to stuff. I've
1: had that argument with the Wall Street – this discussion with editors of the Wall Street Journal. Hey, why don't you put your blog out ahead of the paywall? Right. But you have to be a registered subscriber to comment. And this way – not only that, you have actual people who are identifiable. And the feedback would make sense. Right. You're inherently raising the quality of discussion.
2: Yeah, yeah. And you know, so I think – the business tensions always arise, and you see that with even sites that create great blogs, they sort of fade out after a while because the company is like, "I'm not really behind this. I don't believe right. in this." Um, and 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 I draw that contrast to like organizations that started by blogging, right? So you know Gizmodo, formerly Gawker, like they're sort of still all in, and they still right. do good work. I mean, I think it's you know it's always been uneven, but like the good stuff has always been good. You know, Buzzfeed still feels like a blog. Um, mm-hmm. Even though you know, I, I don't like you can define blog however you want, but like that 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 aesthetic, that voice is still there.
1: Can, can we say the blogosphere is uh, a meritocracy, or is that overstating it? Yeah, I think that's overstating it because you you still have the same dynamics you have in a lot of media.
2: One of which is just simple, like you know, old boys network, like right. people promote who they know and these kinds of things. I think it's easier to get in. Um, I, I think you can blog your way to being the voice on a certain topic. Like if you have a a certain niche or a certain subject that you are just obsessive about and you go all in on and and you just keep blogging about it, you can own that topic or that idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's still true. I think if you're in a popular subject, uh, you know, you know, the sort of like, like for me, like a generic tech blog about what's happening in the tech industry. It doesn't do anything. It's really hard to break out. And that is going to be about, do you have the relationships? Do you have somebody who's going to scratch your back by giving you traffic?
1: Let's jump right into our favorite questions. Tell me something—the most important thing people don't know about your background.
2: Um, a lot of people don't know that I am from a tiny little town in rural Pennsylvania, and that we were one of the only, uh, certainly only Asian families. And uh, in, in that, and that really um, informed a lot of my view of like having a very different, probably the opposite perspective of living in a big city like Manhattan.
1: Uh, understandable. Uh, who were some of your early mentors? Um, I've been
2: very lucky to have a lot of good ones. Uh, I had a um, business partner uh, named Fred Burke who uh, was my partner in my first company I started the day after I graduated high school and he taught me a ton about sales and marketing Mm -hmm. and, and that was really, really instructive.
1: Who most influenced your approach to technology and entrepreneurship? Um, maybe one of the biggest influences
2: is uh, Dan Bricklin, who is the inventor of the spreadsheet. He gr- created oh, okay. VisiCalc back Lotus, in 70s. Lotus, all right. I knew I recognized and, him. And later later, sold it to Lotus and, and was working with Mitch Kapor and that team that made 123. Uh-huh. Uh, but Dan is one of the more thoughtful, brilliant, uh, creative voices, You know, really undersung as one of the heroes of the tech industry, mm-hmm. and um, super
1: generous with his thoughts and ideas. This is the question that listeners ask all about constantly. This is the most asked question from listeners. What are some of your favorite books?
2: Favorite books?
1: Um, uh, the Power Broker, Robert Caro's bio sure. of
2: Robert Moses. Monstrous. I think it's a classic and, and, and also really teaches systems thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of those that really, really jumps out. Um, like 1,200 pages if not yeah serves. Uh David Ritz did a, a biography of Aretha Franklin.
1: Really? Uh, I just saw her recently.
2: And it is, it is, it's almost a history of America in the form of a biography of Aretha Franklin. It is such a brilliant, brilliant. uh, David
1: Ritz. Yeah. The biography of Aretha Franklin. Yeah. Yeah. See, I would have named that Respect if. uh,
2: Yeah. He, uh, I forget what, I forget what the actual title is. There's a bunch of books about Aretha named Respect, so they mm -hmm. didn't go with that name. Take it. But it is Um, it is actually one of the best business books that I've read in a long time.
1: Really? Yeah. That's quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. Give me one more. Oh, um... Fiction, nonfiction, tech, non-tech. Yeah,
2: that's a... Re- I, it, there's so many. It's really... It's, it's, uh, oh, then I give us count. 10 more. There was actually... Um, I'm going to forget the name of it. There was a book about the creation of the Highline Park here in New mm-hmm. York City. Um, and how it started as a really a community movement and it became this sort of, you know, one of the top landmarks in the city now. For sure. For tourists to visit. Those um, guys
1: are actually consulting around the world. Yeah. People are and, trying to do and, similar and, things. And
2: they did such a good job of telling a story and of even being self-critical uh-huh. about the mistakes they made. Um, and, and for example, that the park is not really inclusive enough of the community that it's part of. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought it was just very thoughtful and nuanced and also showed how you can build things that are improbably ambitious. And. Make them happen anyway.
1: Now, now they're talking about trying to create an underground park from a abandoned Z yeah, Line. I don't know if that'll really work to the same degree we'll as. Uh, but listen, no one thought the High Line would work. Exactly, it's, uh, it's been a home run. Um, since you've joined Tech, tell us about what you think are the most significant changes. Um, you know what? I would say these past couple
2: weeks has been one of the most significant milestones, which In, is this wild, this, right? this reckoning Just, of you know. VCs being pushed out of their own funds on ethical grounds. Uh, Susan Uber, Fowler, yeah, that, yeah, that her, blog post. Her voice was really powerful. Which is
1: amazing because that post was around for months before it seemed to have gained any traction.
2: Yeah, yeah. And and
1: also there were voices before her, right? Mm-hmm. And
2: you know, I think the fact that just a steady drumbeat of activism worked and that you have things like you know the CEO of Uber stepping down, I think these are hopefully a moment of reckoning for so many of us that have been talking about the need for tech to be more ethical, more humane, more inclusive. Uh, to be able to really point at that having had some impact. And these are not victories because Uh these are horrible situations that people went through. Uh, But it's just the first time that we didn't completely lose after somebody had to endure these kinds of indignities at
1: work. I I suspect Travis, who owns 51-plus percent Mm. of the voting stock, is going to eventually find his way back when he's— Could be you know, re- re-educated and, yeah. and the kindler, gentler Travis will show up, but <laughs> you never know. Um, so that's that's the changes that have taken place. What do you think the next major changes are? And it's only technology. It's not yeah. a big field to yeah, forecast. Exactly. All you of should that. have no, uh, no um, problem with that.
2: I, I do think there is um, a return to first principles about people being able to create on their own, uh-huh. uh, which is that you know the promise of the web was that we were all going to have a voice and we we're going to have a place and that we would be able to publish and create things. And there is such a centralization happening around Facebook, Google, uh-huh. you know. Uh,
1: 90% of the dollars go to two, those
2: two companies. Exactly. And about that much of the tech platform development. So what developers are doing outside in the world is, oh, I'm doing this for iOS, for, for Apple. I'm doing this for Android, for Google. And being able to go back and say, well, the web itself is still the bigger platform, still the biggest platform that's ever existed. How do you create for that and support that and express yourself there? And, I mean, you know, we have a a dog in this fight with Glitch where I'm very lucky because developers love it and they're catching on and and really saying, like, this is one of the things that gives us hope. But I think it's a broader movement, which is um, what brought a lot of us to the web in the first place, the idea that we could create something
1: and the world could find it and respond to it and, and make it a success. So this is a standard question I ask people, but it's especially poignant for you. Tell us about a fail. Tell us about a time you failed mm. and what you learned from the experience. And if people want to know why that is a poignant question, just Google Anal Dash and quote, fail, and you'll understand why. (laughs) Um, I do think uh, one of the
2: biggest failures was in being part of the community that created the first social media and social networking tools. We were so desperate for and hungry for people to use them and optimize for growth at the expense of making these environments humane and Mm -hmm. thoughtful for people. And, And so there's been a Tremendous social costs where, yeah, everybody got connected. And it's great. It's amazing to be able to send messages and media and photos to people uh, instantly anywhere in the world. Uh, but it should have also been something that empowered the people most at the margins, most vulnerable, to be able to advocate for themselves. And, and instead, in many ways, we re victimized them. Mm-hmm. And um, that is something that uh, I hope to spend the rest of my career working to fix.
1: To be fair to you guys that's like third level thinking at the time it's <laughs> hey is anybody going to yeah, use yeah, these yeah, tools yeah, yeah. not yeah. these going to become widespread widespread no. adoption it'll be enormously successful so successful that Trolls are going to be a problem in the common section. Yeah, that that was I, just unimaginable. I remember in yeah, saying to in a friend, "Yeah,
2: you know, I, you know, someday there's going to be a million people on social media." Right. and she was, you know, she was the Last founder day. of our company. And She's like, "You idiot! There's going to be a hundred million people." Of course, then it turns out there's a billion. <laughs> right, and so you know, you would never. It, it would have been absurd if we had said, let's plan for what happens when a billion people show right. up on these social networks. Because people are like, you're out of your mind. There aren't a billion people with computers. Yet. Right.
1: But there are a billion people with smartphones. Right. Who but saw that didn't, in 04? Exactly. Exactly. Right. It was just so, there was no It seemed iPhone. like science fiction. That That's exactly right. Um, what do you do to keep uh, mentally or physically fit outside of the office? What do you do to relax um, before enjoy? I, I
2: love music. I know you're a music fan. I, I, uh, I still am... I'm sort of notorious for being a, a big Prince fan even before he passed away. But mm-hmm. uh, I I love sort of cataloging his work and sort of showing the cultural impact. And so it's a, it's a, it's a fun hobby because you cross paths with like an improbable cross section of life. Like there are people in politics and media, all these different disciplines that are like, oh, you know, whatever. They like the music. It's fun. But also this like, oh, he was a pioneer in tech and right. did all these sort of interesting cultural things. And then, of course, just at a human level for me, like. Um, one of the best ways to clear my head is I have got a six-year-old son, and we'll go out and you know just sort of do something fun, go to a museum, uh, you know, walk around the neighborhood, walk, take the dog for a walk, and uh, I am never not reset by spending just a little bit of time listening to him and his view of the world.
1: Huh. That's a lot of fun. If um if a millennial came to you or someone at the beginning of their career came mm-hmm. to you and said, "Hey, I'm interested in in going into." tech or social or community, mm-hmm. what sort of advice might you give them?
2: Um, one of the key things is uh, find this topic about which you are irrationally passionate. Like, so that, that it can be as narrow, as niche as you want, but if you can be the person who is the one person in the world who is most in love with that idea, knows the most about it, obsesses over it, and really just owns it, um, there's something there for you. Like, you, you, can, you can really build a whole career around that because you can't win on like everybody is chasing this one trend and I'm going to be part of it. I think that's really key. I think the other part, um, because the tide is starting to turn particularly in tech, find the people who are most on the margins, least connected, least central and least privileged in tech and lift them up. Uh, because people, one, they will remember it. They'll never forget you did it. Two, I think that is who's ascendant broadly, is the people on on the outside are saying, okay, I want to be part of this success and I want to benefit from it. Uh, And three, it's just the right thing to do. It feels good.
1: And our final question, what is it that you know about technology and social networks today that you wish you knew 17 or 20 years ago? Um, I wish I had known that
2: technology follows the same rules of human society that the physical world does. In the same way that we architect our buildings and design our communities and our neighborhoods to be safe, comfortable, welcoming, warm places for us to live, we need to put that same thought into designing our digital spaces so that people are welcoming and kind to each other and treat each other well and feel neighborly towards one another. And if we can just repeat a lot of the lessons that the last 10,000 years of civilization have taught us... Uh, we can make being online and in our apps a lot more uh, thoughtful and rewarding
1: experience. We have been speaking with Anil Dash. He is the CEO of Fog Creek Software. Be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see any of the other 150 or so such conversations. We love your feedback, comments, and suggestions. Write to me at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank my audio engineer, Charlie Vollmer, my head of research, Michael Batnick, and my booker producer, Taylor Riggs. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.